This may sound strange, but to crime scene investigators, there's something peaceful about working with the dead. No matter how a victim's life ended, they all have a story to tell. That is, if somebody is willing to listen. For more than 30 years, Howie Ryan has been that guy. Most of that time as a state police crime scene investigator. Today, he is a crime scene reconstruction consultant and expert witness and teacher of state-of-the-art forensic techniques to law enforcement agencies worldwide. He has worked scenes you wouldn't want to experience in your worst nightmare. This podcast series will pull back the sheet on what really happens in the world of forensic investigations. It's not like what you see on TV. So hold on tight as we take a walkthrough of some gruesome crime scenes and controversial cases, many of which are too brutal for most people to imagine, and sometimes even for the experts. Join Howard Ryan and his guest experts from around the world for a no-nonsense ringside seat as they take you Under the Yellow Tape. Under the Yellow Tape podcast is brought to you in part this week by Highlands Forensic Investigations and Consulting. Let us be your guide from crime scene to courtroom. Also brought to you by CRG Plans. CRG, Critical Response Group, making our world safer each day. If you're a parent with school-age children from kindergarten to university, take a look at CRG Plans and see how they're making the world safer for you, your family, your children, in your community. That's crgplans.com. Now let's get to it. Hey everybody, welcome to Under the Yellow Tape. I'm your host, Howie Ryan. In previous episodes, I talked to you about um, some of our upcoming guests, and today we're going to follow through on that. Today we're going to talk about interview and interrogation, and some of the techniques used, some of the method and the methodology that's used, some of the pros and cons of each, and um, how it has affected some very major cases that you are all probably very familiar with. Our guest today, and in the next couple episodes, is a friend of mine and a former colleague of mine, um, Jerry Lewis. Jerry uh, has 25 years in the state police here, and he has done extensive work in the field of being a polygraph expert and interview and interrogation, as well as statement analysis. And I think what we're going to, as we get into this, you're going to find this fascinating as I do, I hope. It's pretty amazing how it all unfolds and the depth that somebody like Jerry can go to in analyzing a statement or just in his questioning of a, of a suspect or a witness, uh, all in in hopes of learning between truth and deception. Jerry, thanks for being here. I appreciate you coming. Thanks, Howie. It's really, I'm um, looking forward to it. It's uh, the greatest topic. Everybody's interested in interviewing and interrogation, and uh, I feel fortunate to have spent a career uh, doing it, trying to learn it. I'm still not an expert in it, but I learned some things that I just like to pass along. I would beg to differ. I've seen you do it. I, I happen to think you're an expert <laughs> at it because I've seen other people do it and I know the difference. Every human being is different and everyone is a struggle and it takes me time. You know, people think you become a human lie detector and in five minutes you can assess somebody. It still takes me a minimum hour and a half, two hours every interview just to go through everything. That's See, that to me is amazing, just the time factor because the time um, that other people will 
spend on this is nowhere near that. And they either give up, they get frustrated, or they think they have something and, and they don't. Um, I, I, I find it through the years I've watched, I mean, I've actually questioned people, but I've watched other people do it. And some of the things that I saw were, um, I was not impressed. I was, I was, there's some people that just don't have the gift to have a conversation with somebody, a social conversation. They struggle. They're almost socially challenged. And they think that they're going to go into an, an interview room with somebody who may or may not have committed a violent crime. And they think they're going to get the information from them. And, uh, I mean, how many times through the years have you, you heard some detective or some officer say, Hey, let me take a run at him. And they walk in and they sit down and, and about 15 seconds into it, you realize this is a train wreck and this is going nowhere. And they're probably going to make the end job harder by what they've done. Have you seen that? Yes. It's, it happens a lot. It's a highly charged environment when you have, especially a, you know, a, a serious crime and a rape or homicide, something like that. And you're trying to resolve it and you think you have the suspect in there and, you see people kind of lining up wanting to be the one to go in that room. And uh, when they go in there, you know, it's frustration begins or knowledge ends. So depending on how much you've learned about interviewing, when you run out of uh, what you thought was going to work for you and it doesn't work and you have to change tactics and you don't have any, people fall back on their power. And they feel the only way they have to convince anyone to confess is because of who they are in here. I have a badge. I have power. And the interview becomes much more forceful in trying to just push the person over the line uh, to admit to a crime. And it, it does kind of uh, detract if you're going to be going in on an interview or an interrogation after that. The person has now been subjected to these pressures um, that are hard to overcome. Yeah. Yeah, I've seen that before. And it, uh, you just sit there watching it unfold and you're, and you're saying to yourself, oh no, we're going backwards here. This is not moving forward. Why don't you tell everybody how you got involved in this? I mean, it's a pretty, pretty kind of a cool story. Well, I come to the polygraph end of it in a different way than most examiners. And I hope the examiners that may be listening, hear me out. I had very, very poor training. Um, no one's fault other than the school that I was chosen to go to. I was on the road for five years and doing the road duty, um, traffic and GP work, general police work. And I found I didn't really enjoy writing summonses. So I spent a lot of my time uh, investigating burglaries and thefts. I enjoyed that. If you could solve that, you're really helping the people whose house had been invaded and they felt violated. Um, so I spent a lot of time, but I had no training, no expertise in it. It was just a matter of uh, following up. And I would always ask for the senior trooper or detective to go in and do my interviews where I, where I could watch. And I'd sit in there and listen and gain. But then you find you're just using someone else's personality, which isn't your personality to try to interview. But that's all you know is to learn from someone else. And the polygraph job came open. They needed one examiner. And I put in for that, never expecting to be picked. They had um, people, detectives with 15 years experience that already knew how to interview and were really good at their jobs. And I was competing against them. So I just, I kind of did it for experience to go through the motions, even though I thought I would like the job, but somehow I was selected out of the 38 troopers and they sent me to a school in Chicago. There were only four or five polygraph schools at the time in the country. They were all run by these individuals with high powered personalities and they all had their own version of a technique and you had to use their technique and they were all different. Uh, 
how to analyze charts and how to figure people out. And I went to a school, Keeler Polygraph, that was run by a man named Len Harrelson. So if the name Harrelson sounds familiar, you're familiar with Woody Harrelson from the TV show Cheers and Natural Born Killers and a lot of other movies. And um, if you know Woody Harrelson, I don't know if you're familiar with his father, Charles Harrelson, is infamous. Uh, Charles Harrelson actually died on death row out in Colorado. He was a contract killer. He had served 15 years in prison for uh, assassinating a businessman in Texas. And then a, a uh, drug dealer that was coming up for sentencing with the, the quote, hanging judge, hired him to assassinate the judge. And he's, uh, he was convicted and sentenced to two life terms. He died on death row. That's Woody's dad, Charles. Woody's uncle, Len Harrelson, is the one that taught me polygraph. And I guarantee he had the same personality as his brother did because the school was um, not well run. It had been years since any trooper had been sent out to the school. I don't think they realized that the training had gone downhill. And uh, I flew out to that school thinking this was going to be the coolest job in the world. I'm just going to show up at a police department, bring a guy in a room, and I'll come out and tell you if he did it. This is going to be great. And uh, through my seven weeks of being in Chicago and learning from Len Harrelson, I actually, when I flew home, I really didn't think the polygraph was that accurate. I thought it was 50-50 at best because we ran mock crime scenarios and uh, on each other. You know, we'd one person would go out of the room and commit a crime by stealing something or rip, burning up a piece of paper like an arson. And then we would pair off and we'd polygraph each other, lay the charts out, try to figure out who's the guilty party. Every single scenario throughout the seven weeks, the rest of the class unanimously picked my charts as the person that did it, as the liar. And in the, my entire seven weeks, I was never the guilty party out there. I was always telling the truth. I could see on my own charts, I was reacting to the relevant questions. I couldn't figure it out. I didn't know why. Lenny uh, never tried to explain it. He would just kind of grin at you. And he kicked one person out of every class that he held. It was just his thing. Even if you had a hundred average on tests, he still wouldn't graduate you. So um, I found out probably a year and a half, two years later, the first person that hooked me up for the mock crime scenario, instead of asking me if I burned up the piece of paper, his first question to me was, you really want to be in this school? And of course I reacted to the question partially because it wasn't, I wasn't having a lot of fun out there, but also I learned every human being is going to react to a surprise. And that was a surprise question. You can never ask a surprise on a polygraph because people will react to it. And you can't tell whether they're responding due to a surprise or because they're lying about it. I didn't know that. Well, he rips the chart off, the, the other student that was testing me, and runs out to Lenny. You got to kick somebody out, kick Lewis out. He doesn't want to be here. I'm watching through the crack in the door. I'm still strapped in the chair. And Lenny goes, uh-huh. I'm like, oh my God, I'm getting kicked out. So every test thereafter, not realizing, I'm worried, what are they going to ask me? So every time they started to ask the question, I reacted to it, thinking it's going to be an embarrassing or a surprise. It took me a long time because Lenny never straightened it out. So I came back to New Jersey uh, really having no confidence in the polygraph, and I had no skills as an interviewer. And when I come back thinking I'm going to go on a, an internship, they were so busy in the unit, they said, we have you set up the next six weeks, three people a day, figure it out. I guarantee. I was more scared than any suspect that came in that room. <laughs> He's sitting there shaking. I'm sitting there shaking. Wow. 
it was a really tough experience. So what I'm going to talk about today, uh, as far as interviewing, really, I had to learn from day one, if you didn't have a polygraph sitting next to you, how could you figure out if this guy across from you is lying? He knows the minute you walk out and say hello, he already knows the answer, whether he did or didn't do it. He already knows if he's going to tell you. And you're trying to figure it out the whole time. And you're trying to act confident. I'm going to know the answer. As soon as you run the test, he turns around. Well, I do it. And you're like, uh, it was a very, very stressful situation. And just for my survival, I had to look at other factors. And I started looking at anything you could possibly think of. I looked at it and I wrote it down and I had charts and graphs that other people were kind of making fun of me that I wasn't just relying on these charts. But I could tell you if somebody came in for the appointment, 20 minutes of right to the minute, probably truthful. If they were a half an hour or more early or even two minutes late, probably deceptive. Now, those were not, I mean, I call them witchcraft myself, but I needed help trying to look at as many factors as I possibly could to figure people out because I just didn't trust the polygraph. So now the training is much better. The schools are all uh, standardized. The science is there. It used to be an art and a science. My technique was mostly art because I, I didn't understand. I couldn't figure out the science. Why was I reacting to questions when I was truthful? So I didn't trust the science. So I used the art. Nowadays, there's some art it's mostly science, and it's uh, proven to be about 91% accurate. That's, that's, that's a pretty high number. But, you know, you think about it. You come out of there. You go out there thinking it's going to be great. You come home thinking, wow, this is not what I thought it was going to be. And you're kind of thrown to the wolves a little bit. Maybe, you know, like how things happen for a reason. Maybe, I mean, think about where your career went after that and where you are now. Maybe that's one of the reasons. Maybe it was a good thing. You know, you, you were forced to learn certain things on your own and see other things. Had you gone out there and maybe the polygraph blew you away, you'd have come back and be like, I'll just hook you up and run you through it. Exactly. I would just be running people and whatever that physiological response was to my relevant question, I'd feel sure yeah. that I have the answer. But with the attitude that I had, I investigated every response on the polygraph. Yeah. and see if they had a reason for why that question bothered them. And I could then, my, my interviews and interrogation were a lot more effective because I was learning a lot more about the person. Yeah. A truthful, nervous person is the hardest person to test and uh, because they're scared and they don't trust it and they know that you're going to ask them if they did it and they, they're afraid their body's going to give them away. So guess what happens? When you ask them if they did it, their body gives them away. It's just stress. So you have to be able to interpret on the polygraph and what we do in our interviews are the things that I'm observing from this person due to them just being really stressed, even though they may be truthful, or are we actually getting clear signs of deception? And that's where I think we talked about the people uh, lining up to do these interviews. Uh, depending on the training you've had, what factors are you going to be looking at from this person and for a couple of years, I was taught all of the wrong factors, everything they were teaching me to look for. You know, I would go to a seminar, I'd learn techniques. Within two weeks, I've already done uh, 20, you know, 10 to 20 in-depth two to three hour interviews in the next two weeks. I could tell you immediately within a month whether the things I just learned in the seminar are going to work or not. 
and most of the things were not accurate at all. And then you feel like I'm an idiot because they're teaching this stuff. They're going around the country. Watch for it. If you see that, it's deception. And then I have a person, I'm clearing them. I'm saying, I think he's truthful. So uh, very much a learning experience. Yeah, that's it. That's, and it's not, you know, it's not a learning experience that you're, um, that's not getting attention. You're handling major cases. Yeah. And you're supposed to have an opinion that's a little higher, if you, if that makes sense, than the original detective who has all the experience and he's worked on it for weeks. You came there, got a 20 minute review and are walking in with someone. You're supposed to come out with an answer that tells them whether they're on the right track. So they kind of put your, your opinion that carries a little, supposedly carries more weight, but, uh, sometimes you don't want that weight. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you trade off, right? You say, I give that up. Um, what do you think about some of these current techniques out there that are getting criticized quite a bit? So the read technique, um, critics of the read technique, you know, some of their claims are that the technique itself is, uh, like here's, here's one of the statements they make about it. It says critics claim the technique too easily produces false confessions. But then they follow it up with, especially with juveniles, with second language speakers, and by people with any communication or language abilities affected by mental disabilities. And I, you know, when I read that, I look and I go, well, no kidding. It doesn't yeah. surprise me. Right. I mean, you know, with different scenarios, you have to handle things differently. So I don't really accept that criticism. Like, I think, I still think some of the technique is good, don't you? Yeah, from what you read there, you know, that to me would be on the interviewer himself to recognize a person that they're dealing with doesn't have the skills, verbal or social skills, to withstand certain types of uh, pressure in the room or interrogation. You have to be able to be the one to make that determination. Is this a valid confession? You know, you always want someone that confesses to tell you something about the case that no one else knows but the person that committed it, number one. And if you recognize someone doesn't, uh, uh, speaks a language, you know, uh, it's not their original language, not their main language, mm -hmm. or they're mentally deficient to a degree, it's really up to you to um, not use techniques and to be on, be on guard of that, uh, before you start using certain techniques or pressuring someone, you have to be very much aware of it. So I don't think it's a critique so much of the read technique, you know, it's a, the read technique, I think is a very good technique. Any of the books written by the original authors, Reed and Inbow, um, they have a lot of good information in them. And the technique they teach is you is to throw, as you do your interview, you throw out certain behavior observation questions. So the goal is to throw out a question like, um, um, if you did this, would you own up to it? Is there anyone that you could say is not, uh, that you could clear of suspicion, you know, and things like that. And you throw them out and there's answers usually that truthful people might give and answers that deceptive people give. And you can kind of grade them as you're going along. And I think the criticism of the technique comes in after that because they have nine steps to get a confession. Well, they're training people that have not done it before and they have to come up with rules that you follow, right? So the first one is you have to walk, uh, if you walk out of the room to get your opinion and then you're coming back in to confront the person, you have to be sure and convince them that you're sure that they're the ones that did it. Well, I think some people overreact to that and they feel to make it sure they use pressure and they yell and their voice goes up and they increase the tension in the room, which is not 
you can just as easily look at someone and say, look, I know you're the person that did it. That's all you're doing is establishing that you know the answer. You don't have to use force and pressure to convince them. But when you're new at it and you're trying to do it and you're nervous yourself and you don't want to mess it up uh, and it's a big case, you know, you get your own emotions uh, rise. And so you're using maybe more pressure. So I think some of the criticisms of it, the the one criticism that I heard uh, was at one point they say, you know, you can reach out and touch the person on the knee or the arm. That's a very powerful technique. And it often causes people to break down and cry if you do it at the right time. But, um, you know, in, in light of everything that we now know, you know, you really shouldn't be putting our hands anywhere on the person that we're interviewing, obviously. But that's, that's a, uh, something that's evolved out of that technique that you wouldn't do. But everything else, I think it's a pretty valid sound technique. If you look at the uh, nine steps, uh, according to Reed, one, positive confrontation. Two, try to shift the blame away from the suspect to some other person. Three, try to minimize the frequency of suspect denials, which we'll talk about. Four, at this point, the accuser will often give a reason why he or she did not or could not have done it. Reinforce sincerity to ensure the suspect. Uh, they will become quieter and listen. Maybe pose an alternative question. Lead the suspect to repeat the admission of guilt if they do, and then document it. All of these things sound right. I, the way I look at this, and this is, I'm going to put this in a very simple term that, you know, you could have a recipe for a meal that you're going to cook and you could write it out in great detail. There are certain people that are going to cook that dish better than other people following the exact same recipe. So going back to what you just said, a lot of it's on the interviewer. I would ask you to read number three again. Three, try to minimize the frequency of suspect denials. That's the key right there. Go ahead. Here's the, here's the rule that I follow that I've always found to be the most important thing if you want to get a confession. Once you tell the person in whatever way you want, uh, however you want to say it, you could say, you know, so far I've listened to you and I'm trying to believe you, but your information just doesn't match the information we have. And I'm not allowed to tell you what we know. I can't give you information, but I know right now you're not matching what we know to be, be true. Or you could come right out and say, look, I know you're the person that did it. Once you make your denial, the most important thing is not minimize. I mean, they're saying minimize the number. Don't ever let them deny it a second time because every time now in the beginning, they're going to say, I didn't do it or whatever. You're not minimizing that. You're letting them talk all through the interview. Now we're talking about interrogation where you have a point to trying to get them to own up to what you think they did. Once you accuse them or tell them that you know they did it, however you want to say it, and they come out with a denial, you do not want them to deny it even one more time. Because every time that they come out to you with a denial after that, you're adding to me, in my experience, 20 minutes to 40 minutes of extra talking on your part and time to get back to where you need to be. Step one for me is stop the denial. So can we stop a person's denial? How hard or how easy is it? How, if, think back to your interviews and your confessions. How long did it take you to stop the person from denying? Usually uh, a minute, within 30 seconds, because you can't let them say it. And the way that you stop them from getting it out, you have to hear it once. Because some people don't even deny. They just sit there. You're already out of the denial stage, which is the only difficult stage to get a confession. If you stop the person from confessing, 
uh, from denying, I'm sorry, stop them from denying, you're getting confession. That's the only difficult step. So you must do that. So the way you do it is if you talk, they won't. So as soon as they start to deny and say, no, you're wrong, you put your hand up. Hear me out. Now, look, I told you when you came in here, you know, I'm up front with you. You're up front with me. I said, look, if you had anything to do with this crime, I'm advising to leave right now. No one's going to leave. But you advise them as the first thing that I do in my interview. I ask a person, do you know why you're here? Truthful people go right to the heart of my, yeah, because money was stolen from where I work. They're not afraid to say stolen. The deceptive person that took the money, do you know why you're here? Uh, not really. They said something about money, but it, I think it could be bookkeeping or, you know, something like that. But I don't, I don't really know. Could you tell me? They're looking to gather information of what you know. But the truthful people come right out with it. The next thing I say is, okay, we're here to talk about that. I want to tell you right now, if there's anything about that case that you feel right now, you've already made your decisions, that you can't tell me or you're not going to tell me, I would advise you to leave. No one has ever left. But your first response when you're all done and you're getting ready to do your denial stage is, remember when you came in, I told you um, if you're going to lie about anything, you should just leave, right? I told you that. Well, you didn't leave. I was fair to you before and told you if you were going to lie, you should leave. You didn't leave. Now we're at the point now, I know that you're not telling me the truth. Now you have to make another decision. What are you going to do about it? You can either tell me or not, or deny it. I'm going to go out and tell everybody that I know you did it. But let's talk about your decision making. I'm already doing all this talking. Once he started to say, you're wrong, I stopped him. If I then talk, slow my speech down, I'm watching him. And if I can pause like this, and he does not jump into the conversation denying the crime again, I won. He's going to confess. I stopped his confession. It doesn't take much. It usually takes a minute or two minutes. If you do everything else in the beginning to establish rapport, he trusts you, you have credibility. When you get later on and you say, look, I know you did it, they don't question it. They know you know. Because you did everything up front right to get to this point at the end. So, you know, that number three, try to minimize denials. I would go stronger than that. So don't ever try not to let them even deny a second time. Talk to us about the percentage of how much they have to, how much of a confession do they need? A percentage, you know, truth value, want value type thing. When I'm reviewing this case and it's a pretty terrible crime, and you have the suspect, and you, you're thinking to yourself, how could I ever get a person to, to own up to committing such a horrible crime? And sometimes you're dealing with people that have been in prison for years and years and years, and they have a hard personality. And, uh, you know, I was new at it. I'm thinking, I have to, he's already made a decision up to deny this and not own up to it, right? He's made his mind up. He's 100% sure he's not, he doesn't want to own up to this. What do I have to go in that room and get him to decide that he's going to tell me? So if you think you have to convince another human being 100% to confess before they do, you're never going to get a confession from anyone. You can't convince anyone 100% of anything. But if you look at it like, I'm going to just talk about his decision-making process. He's decided not to tell me. I'm going to talk about the decision-making process he made. My goal is to get his mind 
I'm talking about the subconscious mind and using techniques of persuasion. I have to get him if he's, um, you know, down around, if he's 100%, I have to go from, from that point. My goal is to get him the other direction. I need him to go up the scale towards confessing, not to 50%, anywhere past 50%. If he has decided in his mind to confess, 51% of his mind has been persuaded. That's his decision. And then he's going to own up to the entire thing. So my goal is when a person starts down, I'll say around zero of not wanting to confess. I only have to get them up to 50%. How do you know if somebody is a 50%? There's three things a person does when they're now wondering, what am I going to do? Am I going to deny or am I going to confess? Right? The first one is they just sit there. They're thinking. They're silent. The other one is they start to ask questions. What would happen if somebody admitted to something like this anyway? They need more information to decide what they're going to do. Think of any difficult decision you made in your life whether it's to get married, go to college, what's my career, should I apply for this? The hardest decisions are the ones you can't predict the answer. You don't know what's going to happen. They're sitting there in a police station like, oh my God, if I admit to murder, rape, whatever it might be, theft of money, what's going to happen to me? They need more information, right? So if they start asking questions, that's a sign they're right there at about 50-50. And the other thing that the person at 50-50 will do is say, "I I don't know. They'll answer a question with, I don't know, because they can back off of that. And later, if you point something out, you say, you don't know. How about this? Oh, yeah, that's right. You're reminding me. So when I got a person in there and they answer, I don't know to something, I don't get upset with them and say, don't tell me you don't know. You know, I say, thank you. What do you mean? I said, I don't know. I said, right. I said, you know what most people do? They lie. You don't want to lie. You're thinking, what should I do here? I don't know what to do. I said, I appreciate the fact that you said, I don't know. And it shows me that there's more there. So I'm just, rather than get upset with people, just understand this, what they have to go through uh, to admit to a crime. So we're really just looking to push people from zero up to anywhere past 50. If a person's a 50, how much more work do you have to do? It's like when you're cutting a tree down, you get that tree right on the balance point and then it's one tap and it's falling. And the person, as they're confessing, right, 49% of their brain is screaming, what are you doing, you stupid idiot? We're going to go to jail for this. And 51% says, I know, but I have to. Mm, That's interesting. How about the truth value versus the want value? You know, uh, part of persuasion is you look at the belief systems of people because that's where you're operating. And people think, well, you know, do you think that every belief you hold is based on truthfulness. And you would say, yeah, I don't think I believe anything that's not true, right? So a belief is everything, anything. You know, is this a nice room? Is, is it good weather out? You know, do you like the way the country's going? Whatever belief you're talking about, there's a truth value to every belief you hold. 50% of the things you believe is how much do you think they're true, right? But aren't there very strong beliefs that you hold that aren't based on the truth factor such as your religious views and your politics. And they may be some of your strongest views. And why do they say don't argue politics and religion, especially in this day and age of what we're going through in our country now? There's no ground truth. So you could argue and argue and argue, and there's never an end to it because whatever your argument is, there's a rebuttal to it. 
because there is no ground truth anyone can point to to say, here's the real truth. So we realize that we're talking to people about their beliefs and there is a factor, let's say zero to 50 points that you get from everything you say being based on the truth, right? You can get anywhere from zero to 50 points on somebody's belief systems. The other side of how much truth is there in what someone's saying is a little bit scarier and it's how much do they want to believe what you're saying. You get the other 50 points of every point you're making in that interrogation of the wanting value. So, you know, law enforcement, police are often very good at walking in a room and intimidating people. Some guys could walk in and just look at someone and they'd be intimidated. And we're good at the pressure, you know, and certain kinds of uh, statements that scare people, right? You get zero points for negative information or for scare tactics or threats. The human mind is not made up. Other than what we talked about before with people that might not be mentally able to withstand something or juveniles that just have too much faith in, a, in an adult or something, uh, you know, the person that's, that you're dealing with that's not in those circumstances, you don't get any points for all the negativity and all the scare tactics and all the pressure and you think you're good at interrogating fast paced and loud and aggressive. You get nothing for that. But start talking to a person about, well, let's see if you admitted to this, you know, how would your life be? I said, if I put you in that situation a hundred times, 99 times, you wouldn't have done it, right? So back when this crime happened, did your life stay the same? What do you mean? I said, you're sitting here in the police station talking to me, right? I don't think your life got any better because this happened. Uh, no. I said, okay. If you owned up to this right now, could your life ever get as good as it was back then when you made this decision to commit this crime? I guess not. I said, what are you talking about? Back then you were a criminal. You were committing a crime then. If you admit to this, are you going to do that again? You're not going to do it again. Your life will be better than it was the day this crime happened. This could be something that turns your life around. People want to know about you, their interests. Look at the soaps. When you watch soaps, people are hooked for 40 years on the soaps. Are those people happy? <laughs> Everyone has a huge problem. <laughs> and you're pulling for them. I hope they tell the truth this time. I hope they tell them that they had this. I hope this... That's what people are hoping for you. We're on video right now. We're being interviewed right now. This is going to be played in court. People are going to be watching this and they're going to hope that you make the right decision for you. Not the decision for me. You're making a decision for yourself. So you can talk, you know, as long as you need to talk and you watch the person in the chair and people all confess in the same position. Their back comes forward, their butt slides back in the chair. Their elbows go down on their knees. They're leaning forward, looking in your eyes. The last thing that happens, the head drops. And then they own up to it. So as you're talking, you're going to watch them go through their progression in that uh, chair. And you'll know, you know, how far along you are, how close you are. So it's the belief systems is something you tap into that keeps you from getting into all the negative uh, areas. The biggest threat that anyone can say is, I don't know what's going to happen to you. The unknown is the scariest thing. So if you said to someone, I don't know what's going to happen, that's scary. Everything else you're going to say is going to be some positive thing that can occur if they have, if they're uh, man enough to own up to whatever they did. Yeah. What do you think is for you in your, in your career, what has been the most rewarding type of case to get a confession or the truth out of somebody? You know, it, some of the best cases, the most rewarding, are when everybody thinks someone's lying and you say, I think the person's telling the truth. 
because now no one's going to like that opinion um, when you come out with it. And it's very tough to do in these environments when everybody knows that this person uh, is not telling the truth. But if you can come out and don't say inconclusive because you're kind of afraid of going against the flow here and come out and stand up for someone and say, I think this person's uh, telling the truth. And then the case is resolved where if you find out, you know, as weird as the circumstances were, this person was really truthful. So as much as you think of all the big confessions you got in big cases, it's really the times where I came out and believe someone that are probably the most rewarding. Yeah. Let me ask you this. How, how, what's your opinion on, you hear so many people talking about body language and gestures, uh, and putting a lot of weight into it. What's your feeling on that? It's pretty interesting. The, they've done a lot of studies on gestures and there's people that travel the country and, uh, teach looking at gestures, uh, to see if somebody's telling you the truth or not, but I'll give you the latest statistics of using gestures to determine a person's truthfulness. So the average person off the street with no training uh, comes out to be about 54% accurate in determining truth or deception of someone. So it's just over 50-50, half, right? Flipping a coin. They, they used experienced law enforcement officers that averaged over 20 years of interviewing experience. That's pretty good. Their accuracy based on gestures was exactly the same, 54%. It's, it's pretty amazing with all that experience. They're the same as the average person off the street with no training. Right. Here's the thing that people with no training, their mistakes are believing people that are lying to them. But the police officer's mistakes are not believing people that are telling them the truth. <laughs> Right. So you just, you get on the job, your nature to get on the job is to be aggressive. And then as soon as you get on the job and start getting involved in situations, you get very cynical and you just think everybody's lying to you and you just really get down on that. Then your experience, your training is you go to these classes and they teach you to look for body language, which is not accurate. What there's not one piece of body language that's accurate to determine truthfulness or deception. So all of the eye contact you've been taught or have seen folded arms in the chair and looking around, being distracted, not, not one of those, it's just signs of stress. And you have to determine is that stress coming from a truthful person scared to death? They're going to be blamed for something they didn't do. The bigger fear is for a truthful person on a polygraph. When they come in, they're always more nervous than the guy that did the crime because the guy that did the crime, worst going to happen, he got caught. He did it, got caught. The truthful person that didn't do it, that's a suspect, is thinking, if this thing is wrong, I'm going to get blamed for something I didn't do. That's always worse, right? So the other part of this is that the studies have shown the more a truthful or deceptive person, doesn't matter whether they're truthful or not, tries to convince you that they're being truthful, the more you will not believe them. So you kind of believe them, but you gave them a little test to see, and all of a sudden they're trying to convince you, that makes you not believe them. So they're actually hurting their own case the more they're trying to sit there and convince you uh, that they're lying. So the problem is the end result for a truthful person coming in for an interview that's based on gestures I'm talking about, right? We'll get into statement analysis at another time, but based on gestures, 
they have a 46% chance, if they're telling the whole truth, they have a 46% chance of not being believed. And the more they try to convince the person they're telling the truth, the, the less they'll be believed. It's a very scary situation for the person and for the investigator, really, our goals are to figure these cases out and to believe people that deserve to be believed. And the problem is that we've been taught the wrong things to look at throughout our careers. And we're doing the job the best we can, but we're looking at basically the wrong factors. Yeah. As far as the practitioners, the law enforcement people that are, that are doing this, <clears throat> I ask this because I've seen this a lot. And what's your take on their ego getting involved and interfering with objectivity and making a, a sound, you know, clear decision? You know, i give you a, a great example. I would ask people that are interested in this topic, if someone walked in a room and told you 100% the truth, would you believe them? And I think innately, most people think, I, yeah, I mean, I, I think I would believe them. They would seem truthful to me. Well, if you look at the Olympic bombing case, Richard Jewell, using the skills that he put himself through schools for and went to the Olympics and spotted a bomb and alerted people when other people are like, come on, there's no bomb here. And he alerted, and he was in the, the close to the bomb when it went off. And he was a hero. He got people out of that communications tower. He was a hero. And when he was uh, rightly accorded the uh, being a hero, the uh, police, of course, they're looking through everything they can to try to figure out who did it. And they started putting together a profile of someone that would... Uh, be involved in setting a bomb at the Olympic. And it's somebody that uh, Richard Jewell fit the, the profile of that, that he wanted to be a police officer. He was having a hard time getting a job. He was hoping he would do something good at the Olympics to be recognized, or maybe somebody would hire him. Um, other people came forward to say when he worked for us on the campus police, he was pretty aggressive and this and that. And so they developed a theory right away that he was the person that set the bomb. And they basically ruined his life and they followed him around and um, he was, his personality was destroyed. He took a polygraph and passed. They didn't really care about that. And um, how did they get him to waive his Miranda rights? They told him they were going to make a training film starring him because of all the good things he did. But they wanted people to know because this training film would be showed at other major events to the security people that, you know, if anything happened, they would be given their rights. So on the camera, they slid the, the Miranda form in front of him to have him sign it. He wasn't, and a judge ruled later, he was not signing away um, his rights. He was an actor playing a part in a movie and signed the piece of paper. But if you look at the mindset of the investigators, they thought they had to do anything they could. And it's kind of tricked or trapped them into that. And when they found out later that uh, Eric Rudolph was the guy that committed all these bombings, and that Richard Jewell was totally innocent. One of the main investigators said, I still think Jewell's involved. The other case that you could point to is a guy in the Elizabeth Smart uh, kidnapping. The police were never really totally convinced a stranger came in Elizabeth Smart's house because it's a labyrinth of rooms. And how could you sneak around in there and be quiet enough that nobody heard you? And uh, the alarm wasn't set that night. And when they looked at the screen where supposedly somebody entered, it was pushed out from the inside, that if somebody came in from the outside, it should have been pushed in. So they had some doubts about whether 
it was really a stranger came in there and took her or not. And they gave polygraphs and there was an uncle of hers that if you read his book, he never passed a polygraph. He was always a suspect in it. Now, the man that took her, right, threatened her and took her out and up on the mountain and kept her prisoner up there. Um, she felt horribly guilty because one day she mentioned her cousin and he, this man that took her wanted to have another young wife. And he actually went down to the cousin's house to abduct her. So the same series of events with the cut screen, but there, there was a dog that barked and he ran away and they called the police. And when they got there, now they were maybe even a little more convinced it must be somebody in the family because supposedly they, they weren't sure before now the same thing happens, but it's a family member. It's somebody that, that the person would know and might not feel so intimidated to go up to that house and cut a screen or something. So there was a lot of, uh, uh problems with the case of, you know, which direction to go. And, uh, they had a suspect, Richard Reese, that had been in the house. He had spent 15 years in prison for burglaries. He stole something. They put him in jail and they interviewed and interrogated him every day. And he always just professed his innocence and, uh, they got tired of talking to him. They stopped going. He calls the police station and begs somebody to come out and interview him because he didn't do it. And he wants them to believe him. And then the profilers get involved and say, there's your guy. He's got no more excitement. He can't relive the case. He's battling with you. He's showing you that he's smarter than you. So now they get fired up. This guy's battling us and he's showing us and they go back there and now they're interrogating him more. He ends up getting a um, um, brain aneurysm and he dies in prison. And even though the wife, you know, had said, he, I know him, he would never hurt a child. They're like, you know, these people that murder, that marry murderers, they're always the last ones to know. And they just put her down. But, you know, in the end, they get her back alive that Richard Reese had nothing to do with it. Like he professed. And the thing that gets me is through both of those huge cases where you put your best people on it, right? Both cases, both suspects, Richard Jewell and Richard Reese, never lied. They came in voluntarily and sat through interviews and talked about everything they did and never lied. And nobody believed them. So what's going on here? There's a psychological principle that if you're involved with these types of cases, you have to be aware of. It's called the higher the stakes. So when you get a case, and it doesn't have to be a murder or a big national case. If you get a case assigned to you and it's important to you that you want to solve and it's for whatever reasons that important, the higher the stakes, this shows the human mind, you will not believe anyone that you talk to because the chances of being wrong and letting the guilty party go are too harmful to your ego, right? So anytime we're involved in an important case, and I could feel these things happening because I was always getting called out on the murders or, you know, missing, missing children, um, all the time. So you feel these pressures. You don't really want to come out and clear suspects because you really have little information, right? But you have to do it. So if I in polygraph failed every person and by fail, you know, I mean, I said they're deceptive. If I do that with every test I ever ran, I, I could say I was never wrong. I never made a mistake. Well, how would it be? Let's say I test a suspect. I say that uh, he's, he's deceptive. And now the detective calls me back and said, well, we just solved the case. And that guy had nothing to do with it. 
if I wanted to defend my ego, I could say, well, you know, when I talked to him, he, he was lying about something. So maybe he did something uh, very similar to this and was hiding that and we get reflected reactions. I made that up. But people would hang up, you know, if I said it, they'd say, oh, oh, I didn't understand that things worked that way, right? But any time that I came out of the room and our statistics in the state police, we passed, uh, said people were truthful about 70% of the time. Because you think a lot of our cases were what we called whodunits. Money's taken out of the safe, a quick check, nine people work there, test them all, see if one of them did it. So if one did or two, you still got seven truthful, uh, you know, if everything's accurate and your uh, opinion's there. So our stats were going to be higher for clearing people in a case. So 70% of the time I was walking out with this feeling of, you know, if I clear someone and say they're truthful, well, if it ends up that they go back in with the person and he confesses to the crime, now they're going to say, Lewis, you said this guy was truthful. You believed everything he told you? Yeah. Well, he did it. Where, where is my ego saving? Where's my face saving? There's nothing, no way for me. I'm a horrible uh, interviewer, polygraph. Those people would never want me to come back to that department again. I made this big error. How could I believe this guy when everybody knew he was? So the pressure on you to not clear people in, in big cases, we really have to be aware of that in our minds and make sure that we're not um, coming out with an opinion to not clear someone because of worry about our own ego. What do you, what's your opinion or what's your take? Give me your thoughts on the importance or the power of silence in an interview. You know, silence is not a break for the person that you're talking to. It's not rest and relaxation time. They don't sit back in a chair and take a big sigh. You're talking and you stop talking and you're, you know, obviously it's just the two of you in there and you're looking at them. That's a lot of pressure to have them respond. And the way that you're going to figure people out is not in observing their gestures and how they're sitting in the chair. It's by listening to the words that they say. So when you have an unresponsive person who's just giving you a yes or a no, silence is a very powerful motivator to get that person to start uh, being more interactive in the conversation. So it's very hard, I think, for detectives, me included, you hear I'm a talker here, um, to be silent, but uh, it can be used to great advantage. I, I find, um, and what I've seen over the years is so many of the people that are involved in the interview process, they try to speak, <clears throat> excuse me, one of them, some of them want to be heard. Uh, they go in there, they say, let me take a run on them. They get in there and they want to talk. And you're watching sometimes through the, through the mirror or listening to watching it on a monitor. And you're saying to yourself, oh my God, just shut up. Let them talk. They want to talk to you, but you're not giving them the chance. You're just going to town here. You're talking, talking, talking. But I have seen over the years where you'll see an interviewer speak and then kind of leave it hanging and just stop. And that person feels this need to fill that void. They feel like it's almost like you can see if, 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 they, if they let that silence go, it's working against them. So they, they just start to talk to you. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that? Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, there's a lot of definitions about interviewing and interrogation. We all kind of know what, what we mean by each term, but if you really want to know, even to examine yourself while you're conducting an interview, who's doing the talking? Mm -hmm. Because in an interview, the person that you're talking to should be doing at least 90% of the talking and you're doing 10% or less. You're asking just general questions to get more information. Once it turns into interrogation, 
And because of things like I mentioned before about shutting down the person's denial, you will find you're doing 90 to 100 uh, percent of the talking. So listen to yourself in your interview. And if you're doing all the talking, you're interrogating. You're not really interviewing. How many times have you seen um, officers go right to the interrogation phase? Mm-hmm. In other words, they don't they don't sit in there and, and let the person talk. They go right after it and they just they're on them. Yeah. And is that a mistake? You know, a lot of people think they have the answer and they have the right technique and they want to go in and do the thing. Well, here's, they did a study psychologically. Well, I say psychologically, but it's with chickens and they have uh, chickens set up in, um, in cages and they peck a board and the light comes on. So they have one chicken. Every time he pecks, he gets a treat. The other chicken, every three times he pecks, he gets a treat. The last chicken there's no rhyme or reason. He could get a treat one time and he could do it 15 times before he gets a treat. When they stop giving treats, the first chicken stops immediately. He pecks, no treat. He almost stops right there. The second one, he'll give it three tries, three tries, three, then he's done. The last chicken that had an intermittent reward, every once in a while he was rewarded, never stops pecking that board because the chance is. Well, I found, and I'll just speak about me, when I started on the road talking to people about thefts and burglaries, I thought I had a good persuasive technique or a theme to use, right? If you're successful in getting confession, that's your thing. And you're using that one, you know, consistently because you had an intermittent reward. You got rewarded once with a confession. So a lot of people go around with only one theme. So when they go in that room, you could do who, what, when, where, why, and how in less than 20 minutes and be done with your whole interview and, and you got answers for it. You really have to spend time with people, do a background form, establish your rapport, get credibility and trust established, then go into the interview portion, listen to the words they're saying, then make a decision and start your interrogation. So yeah, it's very, it'll work. And if it works, you're done in 20 minutes with a confession. That's the one you're going to keep using. Right. You know, one of the things I found is um, thinking back through the years, like, you know, your tra- your early training days, the academy, your basic police academies around the country, they don't teach you any of this. Um, I always thought it was a huge mistake. We're so worried about all the um, public perception, social acceptance type benchmarks in our training, you know, the woke society that we don't want to insult everybody. We're going to, you know... It's so funny because in, in interview and interrogations, you talk a lot about the use of pronouns. You see people now signing their emails. Well, these are my preferred pronouns. I mean, it's so, it's almost laughable if it wasn't so true that it's happening in society. But the the bottom line is the, your, your entry level people are not getting this training, yet they are the ones getting in a patrol car and having the most public contact of anybody in that agency. And you would think it would be a, a return on in, on investment type thing where we'd say, look, let's give them a week of, of like literally hardcore I- interview tactics, not necessarily interrogation. Maybe the detectives can come in and do that, but at least that social interaction, that discussion, you know, we knew how to march. We knew how to fold our clothes. We knew how to make our beds and all that other stuff, but we never really got that. We did that crisis intervention thing, but we never really had the, the roadside conversation. The, the things where you cut your teeth and you learn. Some people take that on their own and they, like you did, and, and you got better and you got great at it, but other people, they never do. And you, you start to think, how many opportunities have been lost 
to find out truth about things that went on that we just missed. Mm -hmm. You know, the people that need this training are the ones in the academy because yeah. they're the ones that are having all the contacts with the public. Mm -hmm. So we put together in 1988, our academy had a, a slow time because they didn't have any classes in and they were looking for um, other courses to present. And so we put together the polygraph unit, a five day school on interviewing. And our only stipulation was let us get a few people in the class as we travel around the state and go to different departments or state police barracks. And we find a young uh, trooper patrolman detective that's really doing the job and is interested to learn. Let us pick that person to come down and get in the next school. So that worked for about two schools. Then what <laughs> happened? All of the senior people are like, hey, how come this, this young guy in my squad got to go down to Seagirt to go to an interview school? I've never been to it. It's not really fair. We got to go by badge number. So what we found was all of our classes were filled by more senior people that were off the road, not conducting the interviews. It never got to where it dribbled down to the actual uh, guys doing the job on the road. And we always fought against it, but they took that power out of our hands and said the training officers in each troop or wherever had to make the decision because you'd have all the dissension in the ranks about how this young guy got picked to go to the school. So everything you're saying is exactly right. And uh, it is the younger people. We, we went to the academy several times and let us present some interviewing training because our workload went down. When guys would come to our class and see what we were doing in the room, other than running a polygraph, they did it themselves. They got the confessions themselves. They didn't need us to come there anymore and get confessions. So it helped all the way around. Um, but the academy had so many stipulated training courses, uh, classes that they had to present. They didn't even really have the time to fit in interviewing as valuable as that is. You know, as we go around the country and we teach, um, I notice, I notice differences and we get into some States where it's right to work. I noticed that the officers are, are very eager to get into the class, eager to build the resumes, eager to stay relevant. Whereas we get into a lot of the union States, it's what time are we getting out? What time is lunch? How long is lunch? And the, the, the series of questions are completely different because they're kind of, there's this protect, protective shroud, right? With the union, I get it. In a, in a right to work state, they can walk in at any given day and say, hey, thanks so much for the 14 years. We don't need you anymore, which is rough. It's a rough way to work. But they also have this aggressive way of wanting to train. They're, 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 they're there. I literally had a guy in a class one time say to me, you know, if we stayed till 5.30 or 6, we could probably get a lot more out of it. Wow. And I said, why don't you stand up in front of the class and say that same thing? And he go, well, I couldn't say that because I'll say this. But I, I say to them all the time, I said, you know, there's a saying, if the public only knew or if the public ever knew. And sometimes what I mean by that is like exactly what you just said. You started a good program. It was reaching the people that needed it. The senior guys got a chapped ass, started talking about seniority and badge number. They wanted it. They're never going to do this. Half of them are padding a resume saying they went somewhere so when they retire, they can get a job somewhere. And if the public only knew, we destroy more opportunities in this profession than we embrace. And we got to learn to stop doing that. You know, you got to really, especially today, and you know, I want your opinion on this. It's a different job. It's harder today than it was when I was there, I, I think, because they're so restricted. You got cities that are burning down. I mean, today, you were sitting here today. 
I saw on the news this morning, they lit a federal courthouse in Portland on fire. You know, you start saying, when are we going to stop this shit? I mean, this is not allowed. So people are, a large part of this country is saying, what are we doing? Well, th- what are the new officers doing? What are they being told? What are they being allowed to do? Well, the real question is, what are we teaching them to do? What are, how are we, are, are we helping them, setting them up for success, setting themselves up for professional development? And the answer is, we're not doing much. We're teaching them the bullshit that, that happens in every in-service. Hey, we're going to talk about domestic violence. Well, we do that every year. Does it really change? No. Okay. How about no? Let's not do that. It's the same shit as last year. Let's do a three-day on interviewing people and, and start to really build that skill set and see how that changes, changes things. I think if we interviewed better, we'd probably have more positive interactions with the public than, than the confrontational ones. We're always going to have those confrontational ones. It's just the nature of the business. And sometimes we're going to have to be heavy kind of heavy handed, but not all the time. And I think we lost some. What do you think? You know, it's interesting. As I listen to you, I realize I'm speaking from a very uh, limited viewpoint because I wasn't aware of what you're saying about people in the private sector coming in. What did you call them? The right to work states? Yeah. Yeah. I wasn't aware of that at all. Oh man, it's big. So, you know, a lot of the things I might be saying, people are like, well, we don't operate like that. And what are you, you know, what are you talking about? So I realize, you know, that, that my view is limited here. And that's why I say I'm not really an expert in all this, just things that, that help me. The other thing is a lot of the training that, um, that I've seen people are put through are for liability reasons. They have yeah. to cover all yeah. this, right? But interviewing um, should be one of those topics, and I would just say that if if you look at interviewing and how to persuade people and how to talk to them, the most powerful techniques look great on video. Yeah, they're they're used on the subconscious mind. There's nothing you're not tricking or trapping anyone. These are things that are out in the world when you watch TV, and um, you have things are coming out for these infomercials and QVC is an unbelievable persuasive tactic that there's no defense because we make all of our decisions on the subconscious mind, right? And there's so many things that I go over in my class about persuasion and techniques, right? I don't know if any of you are aware of this or if you have, we have it at the shop, right? They have the carts, right? They're always all over the parking lot, you can't find a spot, you don't want anybody to hit your car with the cart, but ShopRite has these things on the handle that if you put your quarter in, you pull your cart out, you use it. When you bring it back, you put it back, you get your quarter back. It's, it's brilliant, actually. It, there's, you can't find an empty cart anywhere. You have to put that quarter out. The psychology behind that is what we're tapping into when we're getting people to confess because it, it's your quarter. And people would rather, um, you know, when they buy things on TV, they don't return them because they have it. They possess it. It's something of theirs. And it's hard to give up something you own. Even if you're not using it, it's, it's, you bought an exercise equipment and, and your clothes are hanging on it. You're not turning it in because you bought it. That quarter is yours, right? So they did studies. People would return the cart for a nickel. Yeah, Nickel. It has nothing to do with the amount of money because they thought more people had quarters on them than nickels to make it more convenient, right? So they knew that the the power of the subconscious mind, just in that one little example, is that people don't want to give up things. Now walk 
go to put your card away and have somebody walk up to you and ask you if they can have your card is awkward. Are they offering you a quarter to go along? Do you care about the quarter? No. It's all this psychological stuff on your subconscious mind, you know, and all of the things that persuade people to tell the truth about what they did. And you have to remember, this isn't trickery. You're not trapping anyone. All you're asking someone to do is admit what you did. Tell us what you did, right? And all of the things that are powerful are very positive uh, experiences. And you could do every one of them on video. And people think you're being great to that person. You're treating them very well. So I think in this age of society where all of our training is to be kinder, gentler, uh, be more aware of people's feelings, that will not diminish properly conducted uh, interrogation and confessions at all. Yeah. For the young detective out there, um, what advice could you give them? Understanding that they're hamstrung somewhat by their by their brass, their chain of command, mm-hmm. what they're going to be allowed to do. But how should they, how should they look forward or move forward in, in becoming better at this? You know, I would say, number one, treat everyone the way you would want to be treated. Because let's say um, you did something wrong. Let's say in the state police, you uh, left your hat in the diner and it's gone. You, the radio, you had it on the roof and you pulled away and it got run over and the damage. You, you lost property, damaged property. You're going to receive some kind of reprimand for that, right? You're already admitting you did it. You know it was wrong and stupid. But what are you hoping the person that's going to hand you this, uh, what we call a blue ticket or whatever you might get, you're going to get a conversation along with it. And what kind of person, you know, are you hoping that's going to go through this with you? You don't need someone to lecture you on how stupid you were, what a ridiculous thing that was. And you don't want to be judged So the main thing that police officers I find do is when they go in to do an interview, they're not in there just to figure out if the guy is telling the truth or not. They're in there to put the person through an experience, through something. Let me go in there and take a shot at this person. And they want to go in because they, if they judge him to be uh, guilty of whatever it is, they've judged him to be what kind of person. And they're going to go in there and treat him like that kind of person. So he knows he, he went through something. So the first thing I say, treat people the way you would want to be treated. Do not judge them. That's not our goal. Our goal is to go in there and get them to tell the truth, not to judge what what kind of person they are. So leave the judgments out. And then the last thing I would say is we haven't gotten into statement analysis yet, but of all the things that you could do to figure out whether somebody's telling you the truth, listen to the words that they're going to tell you. The second you talk to any person about a crime, if the second they feel they may be a suspect in your mind, they work there, they were there that day, whatever, they should come out with some kind of a denial. So truthful denials are, I didn't do it. I did not steal that money. I don't know who did that, right? But people tell you the truth they can tell you. So listen to the words people say when they come out with their denial right there in the beginning. As soon as they think they might be a suspect, they deny, right? So if the person, they can look you in the eye and be truthful and say, no, I deny doing that. They're not, that's not a denial. They're just denying it, right? It's not a good denial. They could look you in the eye and truthfully say to you, I'm telling you, I didn't do it. I'm saying I didn't do it, right? The truthful person says, I didn't do it. 
the person that did it can truthfully say to you, I'm telling you I didn't do it. I'm saying I didn't do it. So when you hear those words, that's most likely your person. He can't come out with the words, I didn't do it, which is the hardest way to lie. Or if the person says, I'm innocent, I'm not guilty. Instead of saying, I didn't do it, they say, I'm innocent, I'm not guilty. That's a truthful statement because unless they've gone to court and have been found guilty, they're telling the truth when they say they're innocent. So you want to listen to the words and realize what truth is this person able to tell me? There's probably so many times we could go back in history and in news and look at old reports from agencies all around the world where people have missed that. They're not listening to the words. Um, well, I, I tell you what we're going to do, um, and I, I'm very, very happy and, and thrilled that this is going to occur, but we're going to come back on the next episode and we're going to start off with the topic of statement analysis. And right from that point, we're going to jump into some statements that have, that have uh, been recorded in history on some very, very famous cases and popular and well-known cases. And the first one we're going to talk about is O.J. Simpson and some of the statements he gave back during the investigation and subsequent trial for the death of his wife, Nicole, and uh, Ron Goldman. So, Jerry, man, I want to thank you for this. I think it sets the, the stage for what we're going to do in the next couple episodes with statement analysis and, and going through some of these. We're going to do OJ, right? We want to do Ted Kennedy back in the day, John Benet Ramsey. Um, maybe Megan Kanka. Megan Kanka, right? Megan's Law. Um, maybe even touch on a little bit of Andrew Cuomo and Joe Biden. Oh, yeah. That modern day stuff that uh, is unfortunately, in everybody's face every single day. <laughs> you know, before you hear this, you're going to watch the news or look at the the uh, newspapers. And the title will be Governor Cuomo vehemently denied this accusation. And then you read the article and it was the press secretary said something. That's not him denying it. Or in the, his one that I heard, you know, he said, um, no one said anything at the time. Yeah, that's the truth he can tell, because I'm sure none of these women at the time that he accosted them, if he did, it's alleged, they they immediately said to him, hey, you know, that's a crime. You can't do that. So by him saying no one said anything at the time, that could be his truth. But it's not a good denial. It's the truth he can tell. For what he's being accused. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to wrap this one up for right now, and then we're going to be back and we're going to jump into statement analysis with Jerry again. So. I hope you guys tune in. I uh, follow this through the series of the ones that we're going to do. Some of this is going to blow your mind and you're going to revisit some old cases and hopefully leave it with a little different mindset. Thanks again, Jerry. Thank you. I appreciate it.